Bibles this morning, let's turn to the book of Colossians because that's where we kind of work this thing out to be this morning. And uh, if you remember last week, last week we uh, focused on the mission of the church. We kind of stayed with the theme that we developed in the book of Philippians. And I told you how that the book of Philippians is an incredible book because it really focuses on the kind of Christians that are really the best Christians. And those are the ones that just really have a love to learn the Word of God and want to learn the Word of God in, in everything that they do. And we talked about, if you remember that far back last three weeks ago, we talked about how that that was Paul's favorite church and how that uh, when he wrote to them, there was an intimacy there with him that you don't find uh, that he has with the other churches. And it's because of their attitude toward learning the Word of God and, and, and taking the Word of God and doing what's right with it. And I, if you remember, I told you that that's exactly uh, the kind of Christians that you look for when you build a church. You look for men and women, young men and young ladies, that uh, simply want to put God first and everything else in order after that. And uh, <clears throat> that's where the real the blessings are of the ministry. So much of the ministry, and we talked about this last week. Remember we talked about out of 1 Kings chapter 4 where we talked about the aspect of uh, giving life to dead people, or really 2 Kings 4 it was. If you remember, we talked about how that uh, uh, there are some uh, really hard things to deal with in the ministry. The ministry, as the Bible says, the more you get wisdom, the more you get understanding, the more you begin to deal with people in their problems, the more you see the dark side of things and uh, sin raises its ugly head. And there's so many things you have to deal with that are not only hard sometimes, but that aren't very pleasurable to deal with. The thing that makes the ministry worth it all, and I'm just going to flat out tell you this after so many years of dealing with people, the thing that makes the ministry worth it all, besides the fact, the number one fact, is what Christ has done for us, but the thing as a pastor that makes the ministry uh, enjoyable is Philadelphian Christians. Men and women who just simply want to learn God and want to learn about the Word of God, and that's all there is to it. So when we studied the book of Philippians, I told you that Paul, when he writes his New Testament books, he writes to seven churches. And if you remember, I told you that the Apostle John, when he wrote the book of Revelation, he also addressed seven churches. And I told you how that those churches represent a number of things. First of all, they represent the different characteristics that churches do have. You're going to find that every church is a little bit different in its character. And a lot of that has to do with how they approach the Word of God. You're going to find, as we already stated, the obvious, that churches are made up of Christians. So you're going to find Christians come in different characteristics, just like you have the different characteristics of the church. When we come to the book of Revelation, we know that those seven churches there represent for us in history seven periods of church history. All of you know that. If you've been coming on Thursday night and you've been any kind of Bible study at all, you know that is a fact. But they also there represent different kinds of churches and different kinds of Christians. The great thing is, and I told you when we studied the book of Philippians, we were going to do this when we came to the book of Colossians, is matching up the churches that Paul writes to, the seven, 
and the seven churches that John writes to, because they match. And one of the greatest studies you'll ever take in the Word of God is to study the matchup between those churches. For instance, when you go to Revelation chapter 2, and turn to Revelation chapter 2, because we're going to head there in a moment, but uh, when you come to Revelation chapter 2, you're going to find the first church is the church at Ephesus. And that church in church history, we know, lines up about the time of Christ to about the first 200 years thereabouts of, of 200 A.D. And that church lines up to the, the book that Paul writes, the Ephesians. Then in chapter 2, verse 8 through 11, you have the church in the next period of church history, which runs approximately about 200 up to 325 A.D., and that would be the church of Smyrna. That church lines up to the church that he writes to, which we commonly call First and Second Thessalonians, or the church of Thessalonica. Then in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, you have Paul writing, uh, John writing to the Pergamos church. And that brings us to about 325 up to about 500 A.D. at the start of the Dark Ages. The Pergamos church period will match up to the church that Paul writes to, the book of Galatians. Then you have in chapter 2, verses 18 through 27, the church at Thyatira. In our little church history, this will bring us up to about 500, to about 1000 A.D., and this will match up to the church that Paul writes to, the church at Corinth. Then in chapter 3, you have verses 1 through 6, and John writes to the church at Sardis. This will bring us up to about 1000 A.D., up to about 1500, right before the start of the Reformation. This church will line up to the church that John, uh, Paul writes to, the book of Romans. Then you have chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, the, uh, uh, the Philadelphian church. This church runs about 1500 up to about 1900, and of course uh, this is the church, obviously at this point, of Philippians, and the church that Paul writes to. Then you have in chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, you have the church of Laodicea. Now that is the church that comes into effect in 1900, that is the church age that you and I are in at this particular point in time. This is the last church before Jesus Christ comes back, and it's called the Laodicean church. And it runs, as I said, about 1900, about till the rapture of the church. And this church matches up to the book of Colossians, which Paul writes. Now, in Revelation chapter 3, I want to draw your attention to verse 14, and I want to read some things here, and then we'll move right along here. It says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Now you want to mark verse 20. We're going to make references back and forth here in just a little bit. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. Even as I also overcame, I am set down with my Father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you today 
for those that, of our church that have came today for this special day. And Lord, uh, this message uh, you put on my heart today is, is where I'm at with everything. And the thing I like about days like this is that, uh, that everybody goes home today understanding a little bit better where we're at and why we do the things that we do. And help us, Lord, quiet our hearts today. I pray, Father, that you'll show us and give us the truth and the reality of what we need to grasp today. We pray, Father, that you'll bless us and let us have a good day today. And, Lord, let us thank you in our hearts. Thank you, Father, in everything that we do for allowing us to have this little church that teaches the Word of God, that takes husbands and wives, that takes young men and young ladies, that takes moms and dads and really helps focus them in these last days uh, where the focus needs to be. There's so much out there today, Father, to keep God's people from God's house. And Lord, I pray that, uh, that those that are here today that really make the backbone and the core of our church, I pray, Father, that you'll take them and strengthen them today, that my preaching would edify them as I prepare them for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, the greatest study of these seven churches, for me, to today anyhow, would be these last two churches. Look at the church I told you about Philadelphia. And the Philadelphia church age, as I told you, runs about 1600 to 1900. Without a doubt, and you know without a doubt is the greatest period of church history. It is the church that the Word of God literally goes around the world several times, and it's the greatest missionary, greatest evangelism, greatest everything. If there's ever any point in church history where God was doing what He does best with God's people, it's in this church period. And this church, as I already said, lines up to the book of Philippians. You see, it takes Philippian Christians to bring about a Philadelphian church age. It takes men and women who just simply fall in love with the Word of God. Then the next church is Laodicea. And Laodicea uh, is the church that the people are more concerned about their rights than they are God's rights. And of course we know that this brings us up from about 1900 to the rapture. And just as Philadelphia, then you have Laodicea in John's writings, in Paul's writings you have Philippians, and then you have Colossians. And the book of Colossians is a great study. The book of Colossians represents for us the Laodicean church. And where the Philippian church shows us the Philadelphian church age and shows us how the church should be, the book of Colossians, which represents Laodicea, shows us what the church has become. And then why it happened and how to better understand and all put it together. Five times. Now the book of Colossians, you can turn back to Colossians now. The book of Colossians has four little chapters in it. It's not a very big book. Five times. In those four chapters, you have a reference to Laodicea. Chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 13, chapter 4, verse 15, and in two times in chapter 4, verse 16. Now this book is obviously one of Paul's prison epistles. He writes this around 62, 64 A.D. Now, you know what? Years ago, years ago, and I, I've learned a lot of good things about the book of Colossians that have helped me in my life. And I'm going to share some of them with you today because we as a church, uh, I want to always take care of my Philadelphian Christians. And I want you to know what I know. And when you leave today, and I know I keep reinforcing this, but when you leave today, there's some things that I want you to leave. I don't expect you to remember everything that I say today. 
I'm not going to remember everything I say today. But I do want you to remember a couple of things. And I will emphasize those things as we go through. And here's the first thing I, that I saw. Years ago, probably 18, 20 years ago, I detailed the book of Colossians. I saw what it was. I understood how it fit into my life. I realized that it showed me it was the only book in the Bible that I feel was written directly to me in the latter part of the 20th century because the book of Colossians focuses on the last half of the 20th century moving into the 21st century. It shows us exactly what has went wrong today and then, well, you'll see when we break it down. Now, the greatest thing I saw, when I saw this, I remember, I saw five times in the book of Colossians, it talked about Laodicea. And I was, it puzzled me. And I began to investigate in history, did a little topographical study, and I found out that Laodicea, the city itself, was about 11 to 15 miles south of Colossia. And I remember putting that all together, and I began wondering how that all fit together, and then it hit me. It hit me like a ton of bricks. And it is something that I have never forgotten. Now this city, Colossia, was 15 miles or so south, or Laodicea was 15 miles south of that. That would be a lot like Blue Springs from Kansas City downtown. And the thing that I came in with that that I want you to remember today, that you don't have to live in Laodicea to be affected by Laodicea. Here's a city that lay 15 miles away and still felt the impact. My point is this, we are in the Laodicean church period, but we are not a Laodicean church. We want to build a Philadelphian, Philippian church in this church period. In other words, we want to be separate from the Laodicea mindset. But, you don't have to live in Laodicea to be affected by it. And the Laodicea attitude will creep into any church that tries to do right if you don't understand that principle. That's why it is so important to understand what I'm talking about today. We have a job to do. We have a, we have a job to do. Now, if you noticed today, I didn't really put a... I, I mentioned it because I always want to mention it. But I didn't really put an emphasis on having a lot of visitors today. Now, you guys came and I'm so glad you're here. Oh, you. Are you a visitor? You guys came, and I'm glad you're here. We love you to death, and I'm glad you're here. But I didn't put a big push on. You know why? Because really what I got to say today, I want you to hear. You know what? We're doing a good job of reaching them. We're doing a good job of going out and getting people saved. We had a girl saved Thursday night, came to Bible study, and one of our ladies afterwards talked to her and wanted to cry. That's what I'm talking about. That's the way it's supposed to be. So I'm not concerned about that. But I, what I want to talk to you about is when we get times like this, and I'll be very frank with you and very honest with you. I look at those who, and I know that there's people out of town, people work, I know that. But, there, but I'm telling you this, if, if, if somebody says to me, what do you count as somebody that says, I'm on board and I'm with you, it's whether you're here or not this morning. I don't know what else to tell you. Because today is when we're going to get more done today than we're going to get in five Sundays in a straight line of being able to preach to you. Why? Because God's given us a focus. God's given us an understanding. And there's some things that or Paul put together here that we need to look at. And this is why the book of Colossians is so fitting for Anniversary Sunday. And this is why when I saw that and it all pulled together, 
and I really needed one more Sunday to talk about the mission. Boy, this, this finishes out our three-game series of Philippians, the mission, and then the book of Colossians are really putting some things together. Because the book of Colossians, and I said this already, it's you and me, our inside look at the last half of the 20th century. It's a look into our lives today, into the body of Christ, of what is going on. The book shows you and me the end result, commonly called the cause and the effect of the church and Christians losing its first love, which is the Word of God. Christianity is in a mess. And boy, I'm telling you something, it's easy for the spirit of Laodicea to move into any Bible-believing church based on what I've only showed you, that Laodicea was just a short stone throw from, and it had affected the church at Colossians, or the Colossians church. Now, one of the things and that I've talked about on Thursday night, and we talked about it on Sunday morning, is the fact that the Christians today fail to learn the lessons of history. We saw that when God began to deal with the nation of Israel, we saw that when God brought the nation of Israel into being, God did it not accidentally, God did it on purpose. He had a plan and He had a mission for the nation of Israel. That plan got canceled because of Israel's inconsistency and basically leaving God in the concepts of God. We saw it all again in Europe. Europe was given a second chance, a breath of fresh air in 1580 from the dominance of the Roman Empire when Martin Luther broke and started the Reformation. Europe was shaken like Europe was never shaken. And Europe had a chance to fulfill their mission for God, not only in Germany, but in France, in Scotland, and in England. Reformations broke out everywhere. But here again, Europe failed to accomplish that mission and went right back to sleep and right into apostasy. Then we saw it again with a little island of England, a little island that is so small and yet uh, God ruled the world from her from 1600 to, to uh, the early 1800s or the 1900s. And we saw again the mission of God being handed to a nation. And that nation, again, for the third time in man's history, rejecting that plan by rejecting God's Word and God, and off they went. Now we see it in America. God had a mission for America. I should say God has a mission for America. But that mission will never be accomplished because America has never learned the lessons of history. I always like Fourth of July. I like Fourth of July because I like fireworks. I don't put them off, but I like to watch everybody put them off. And uh, I always enjoy, you know, the celebration and, uh, you know, uh, all the... And I do appreciate, you know, the, the sacrifices that men have made down through history for our freedoms and all that. But every Fourth of July, I get a kick out of a song that we don't sing very often that begins to be sung all the time. They sing it at football games. They sing it at, at public events. We ever, even sang it in church last Sunday. And I like the song. And it's that old song, The Battle Hymn of the Republic. Now, I don't know if you know the history of the Battle Hymn of the Republic or not, and we're not going to get into it this morning, but it was written during the Civil War. And uh, it was written by uh, some Christians who were looking at the Civil War and all that was going on and try to put it in some kind of perspective. But the greatest line on the, the greatest line on the Battle Hymn of the Republic is the thing that it's all built around, and that is, His truth is marching on. And of course, that simply isn't true. His truth isn't marching anywhere today. I mean, you can take that 
tune, his truth is marking on, and put it in the same shelf as the Marine Corps hymn that if ever you get to heaven, you will look and see the streets are guarded by U.S. States Marines. I mean, it, it, it all means the same. The streets aren't guarded by Marines, and his truth is not marching on. His truth has fallen flat on his face in America, as it did in England, as it did in Europe, as it did with the nation of Israel. And it's, it's, it's comical to me to see how people get caught up with singing songs when they don't even understand the circumstances that they're in. It's a lot like being on the Titanic and knowing you got 20 minutes left and everybody moving down to the ballroom for one more dance and a round of drinks for everybody, you know, it's, instead of getting the lifeboats. And that's the way America is. The ship is sinking and we're all headed down to the ballroom. And it's so hard to believe that God's people can't see it. And uh, I'm telling you, we are at the end of a lot of things, and this truth is not marching on. The Old Testament has been so explicit. We've seen the, the end of the nation of Israel. We've seen the end of Europe. We've seen the end of England. Now, all you've got to do is look at the apostasy therein. Israel is such an apostate nation today, even though they're still God's people. They have no even resemblance of what they were in the Old Testament. Europe is so amoral, it is unbelievable. If you go into a church, a Lutheran church, a Catholic church in Europe, the question is, when you say, well, I go to the Catholic church or I go to the Lutheran church, the next question is, they will ask you, oh, is your pastor, does he believe there is a God or does he believe there is no God? You have pastors in churches in Europe who see no conflict with the fact that they're pastors in a church, but they do not believe God exists anymore. You know why? Because the damage was done in every one of those nations. And look at England. England is the exact same way, and America is right on the way. It's so easy. It's hard to, be it's hard to believe that God's people can't see it. The writers of the Old Testament saw it. We see it throughout history. Amos chapter 8 verse 11 talks about the fact that there's a famine in the land. Not a famine of the food or bread, but a famine of the hearing of the Word of God. Hosea chapter 4 verse 13, Hosea saw it when he saw Israel in her despicable condition, which he said there was no truth in Israel. There was no mercy. There was no knowledge of God. Now, this was the nation that just what? 800 years before, God had brought out of Egypt and done great miracles to. And now there's no truth, there's no mercy, and now throughout Israel there's no knowledge of God. Isaiah saw it. He saw it in Isaiah 29, 12, when he said Israel had a head knowledge of God, but they had no heart for God. He talks about them giving God lip service with their mouth, but their heart's far from Him. And that's where American Christianity is. Isaiah cited it again in chapter 5, verse 20, when he said that in Israel at this time, Evil was now called good, and good was now called evil. If that isn't a perfect picture of America. Now let me show you how backwards this thing is. If you want to find religious freedom in America, you know where you got to go? You can't preach in a public building. You can't have a copy of the Ten Commandments. Your kids can't pray in school and organize prayer. You're, you can't have the Ten Commandments on the wall in your school. You can't pray before organized events in school. Because that's a separation of church and state, you see. The state has to be separate from all religion. But that's your life and my life. 
Go down to Guantanamo Bay where the terrorists are. They give them Korans. They give them prayer rugs. My God, they put ease on the wall so they know which way to face when it's time to pray. The religious freedom we once had has now been given to a terror. It's okay. And in your tax dollars, the government is paying for the Koran, paying for the prayer rugs, paying for the time, giving them rooms and chaplains to do it. But you and your kids can't do it in America. You know why? Because good is now called evil and evil is called good. Islam has more credibility in America than Bible Christianity. And that's where it's headed. Isaiah said it again in 10.1 when he says it's a time of unrighteous decrees. I read a story last week, probably some of you heard it, one of the most despicable things about that child pedophile molester that killed the three parents or the boyfriend or whoever and then abducted the two kids and probably killed a little boy and they got the little girl rescued from him. I never heard the DNA results coming back, but you know what? They're up there and you know what? You know what? You know what? You know what America mindset said? Somebody got up in the midst of all of this and stated the statement that that man killing those three, possibly four people, was just his way of crying out for help. Now, that's America. Now, I'm willing to help him. I know the kind of help he needs. But he'll go to prison for the rest of his life. It'll cost you and me in tax dollars, $98 million. He'll get cable TV and three squares, three hots and a cot. And he'll get everything he needs. And by the way, the guys down in Gizmo, they eat better than your kid does going to school. I don't know what to tell you. Micah saw it. He saw it in Micah 2 when he said that there was pastors that were preaching falsehoods and they had a lying spirit and the people were so deceived because they had nothing to compare it to that they were holding them up as great teachers and great leaders. Truth is marching on, not according to Isaiah 59.4. He says truth fallen in the street. Hosea saw it in Hosea 8.12 when he said the great doctrines of God that were taught in the 17, the 18, and 1900 are now strange things to God's people. We have God's people today that would come to a Thursday night Bible study and they would listen to what we teach or even on Sunday morning. And you know what happens. You've got friends that, have, that have, you've listened to tapes to. And they look at this thing and they say, oh, this is, it's a cult. It's such a terrible thing. I mean, what, what wild things are they teaching? You know what? I'm teaching the same thing David Gregory taught in 1710. He was a math professor at Oxford, Bible-believing Christian. I'm teaching the exact same thing that Sir George Wilson taught in 1887. I'm teaching the same thing C.I. Schofield taught in 1860. Clarence Larkin in 1900. Hey, Sir, Antichrist, you want to sit down? Sir Robert Anderson in the turn of the century wrote a book called The Coming Prince about the Antichrist that is one of the most unbelievable books. And you know what? It's the same thing I'll teach you. Sir Robert Dip Wilson wrote the greatest treatises I've ever read on the second coming of Christ. He laid the whole thing out and put it into perspective with the seven literal days and lays the whole thing down. Harry Rimmer, you got an argument about evolution in the school? Harry Rimmer wrote a book back in the 30s and the 20s. He was a great preacher that took on the science and the education and the, cre and the evolution world. He put a book called The Harmony of Science and Scripture. He had a standing offer for 40 years of paying anybody in the 20s $50,000 that could, uh, you could show one thing that contradicted the Bible and evolution. $50,000 in the 20s was like $2 million today. Hey, you know what? Nobody ever got the money. But see, it's different now than it was then. 
When I first got saved and I started to read, I started to address and get all of my books together because I realized you had to build a library. And most of you, so many of you are building libraries with my books, so bring them back, okay? <laughs> Just kidding. I'm kind of kidding. Jan Hill, you still got six of mine I gave you when we started our church, but anniversary Sunday, don't you have time? Can you read at all? Or can you got them done? You know what a book I bought? I bought a book by Walter Martin. Walter Martin wrote a book in the 40s, maybe, maybe the 40s or the 50s, but Walter Martin, you know what the name of the book was? It was called Kingdom of the Cults. Walter Martin, that book called Kingdom of the Cults was the definitive book on cults in American Christianity. Every Bible college in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and even the 70s used Walter Martin's book as a standard textbook of the cults. He went through every cult and laid out those cults and then at the end put a common theme to them all so anybody that wanted to understand false religions could understand it. One of the greatest books. You couldn't buy a copy of it today if your life depended on it. Called Kingdom of the Cults. You know what he said? He said the basic thesis and the basic theme about all cults is that they all have in common no matter what they believe here or there is that all cults reject the Word of God as the final authority. Today, 2005, if you believe the Word of God is the final authority, now you're the cult. See where we've come from? Now, I like the name of our church. Name of our church, as you know, is Old Paths Baptist Church. I like that because when people, it, right off the bat, when I meet somebody, when I tell them the name of our church, I can tell by the puzzled look on their face how well they know their Bible. I'll never forget the first time I heard it. It was 20 years ago. I was preaching a place at a Bible conference, and a guy said, I asked him what, he, he was a pastor, and I said, where are your pastor at? And he said, well, Upper State, New York. I said, what's the name of your church? He said, Old Paths Baptist Church. I said, I like that. You know why? Because I immediately went to Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. I knew what it meant. Nobody knows what it means to follow the old paths today. Jeremiah 6, 16, they can't even find Jeremiah. Because it's, it makes a statement about where you're at in a world that isn't anywhere. And I, I like that. Now this book of Colossians, it has four chapters. And these four chapters, in the breakdown, give the body of Christ, you and me, an inside look at what the problem is today. Because we are going to, if we're going to accomplish Revelation chapter 3 verse 20, which was, basically, I stand at the door and knock, building a Philadelphian church, a Philippian church, in a Laodicean church period, then we must understand some things. Now, the book of Colossians, I'm going to tell you right up front, I've told you this as we come through our study, the book of Colossians is one of those must-get-down books. You have to get this book down at some point in your life. Here's the breakdown. Chapter 1, chapter 1, he redefines, again, who Christ is. That's what he does in chapter 1. In chapter 2, he shows you and I the issues of the Laodicean church in the last half of the 20th century and going into the 21st century. And in chapter 3 and 4, he shows me as a New Testament child of God my response to it. And then he shows me how to build a Philippian church in the midst of the Laodicean church period. It's as simple as that. Now, let's look at chapter 1. And in chapter 1, he begins to redefine who Christ is. Now, I want to start this chapter by asking you a couple simple questions. Now, who is Christ? Now, don't answer. Just listen. Who is Christ? Somebody would say, well, he's the Son of God. That's good. 
Can you define that in the Bible for me? Because the term Son of God means something specifically. You see, we think that it means in our, in our Laodicean mindset, we think the Son of God means that he was, he was God's Son through Mary's birth. That's not what it means. Can you define what it means for who Christ is when the Bible says He's the Son of God? Did you ever understand that every time He said that, the scribes and the Pharisees went Cape Canaveral, went ballistic? Because it meant something. And for you and for me to stand here and pretend we're Christians and have a relationship with Christ when we don't know basic 101, who is Christ, what does the Son of God mean? I'll give you another one. Bible says he's the first begotten of the dead, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. What's that mean? What does it mean that Jesus Christ was the first begotten of the dead? You have a clue? Why would somebody enter into a thing called Christianity, get saved, and never learn the intimate 101 basic things about the one who died for them and saved them? That Now, let me just say, if you've been saved or into this thing five years or less, I'm not even talking to you this morning. Because young baby Christians have to learn. I'm not even talking to you. In fact, if many of you, you got plugged into our church when you started coming to our church. I know that. So I'm not even talking to you. But I'm talking to God's people. And you may be listening to this tape someplace. Somebody may give it to you. I'm talking to somebody who's been saved 10, 15, 20 years that's been around for a while who seemingly uh, want to give the impression of having it all together and really being on fire and having a great relationship with God. How can you have a relationship with God when you don't even know what the Son of God is? How can you have a relationship with Christ when you don't know what it means when He's called the first begotten of the dead? He's called the only begotten Son in John 3.16. What's begotten mean? Certainly the one of the great keys to your salvation and my salvation is the concept that He was begotten. He's called the firstborn of every creature. In the book of Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, what's that mean? What does it mean that Christ was the firstborn of every creature? There was, people, there was creatures born before Him. What does that mean? Acts chapter 13 verse 33 it says... My son, this day have I begotten thee, it says again in Psalms 2 and Hebrews 1. My son, this day have I begotten thee. What day is he talking about? What day is that? Do you know? I mean, that's what we're talking about. Let me ask you a question. What changed about you when you got saved? I'll ask you another question. The Bible says you've got a body, you've got a soul, and you've got a spirit. Are they the same? What changed about your body? Anything? What changed about your soul? Anything? What changed about your spirit? Anything? Matthew chapter 22, verse 7 says, You're to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your soul. Do those three match up with body, soul, and spirit? Now, how do we have a relationship? You see, my point is this. We say we know Christ. We pretend we know Christ. But when push comes to shove, and I'm not asking great theological questions. This is knowing Christ, class 101. These are things a child of God had to learn the first two years they're saved. I mean, I mean, are, are they the same? Are they different? We hear a lot of terms. You read up somebody's book and the book says, you need to love God with your heart. You mean the one that's pumping blood in here? We say, well, I'm going to go to church and worship God with my spirit. Really? Is that how you worship God? What is worship anyhow? Can you give me a verse on that? Or is worship just that nice warm feeling you get? 
You see, we've come to the place where the church that we're part of today, we don't even know who Christ is by the Bible standard. Let me ask you a question. Can you still sin after you're saved? Well, if the answer is yes, then how can you go to heaven? If the answer is no, why do we have so many problems with our flesh and sin in our life? You see, the hallmark of the Laodicean church, Colossians chapter 1, is the body of Christ, a group of men and women who are saved and going to heaven who do not know who Christ is. That is the hallmark of the Laodicean church. Did you ever see the prayer Paul prays for them in chapter 1, verse 9? Look what he said. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and a desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Increasing, not decreasing. Filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So when you come down through chapter 1, you're going to find all through here, you're going to find in verse 13, it talks about who, and then it defines him. It talks about verse 14, in whom, then it defines his blood atonement. Verse 16, by whom, then it defines uh, creation. Then it says uh, in verse 17, he is before all things. Then he begins to define eternity. Christ in relationship to all these things. He says, he says in verse 18, he is the head of the church. Then he defines that. Verse 19 and 20, he talks about, by, for by him is the fullness of God. And he shows you how in God you have all the fullness. And the mark of the Laodicean church is the fact that we are going to have 100,000 churches in this city and we don't even know the basic concepts of who Christ is and the basic foundations about Him being begotten, first begotten of the dead, first born among every creature. We don't even have a clue of what those basic things are. Now, how can that happen in a Bible-believing life like you who claim to know the Bible? Let me tell you why. Because Laodicea is just 15 miles south. That's how. All right, chapter 1, we see... He has to go back and redefine who Christ is because this church has lost the concept. They talk about Christ. They use all the terminology. They just know what it means. And of course, that's the problem today. We use the talk. We don't know what it means. And then we kid ourselves into thinking that we really can have a relationship with Christ when we don't even understand who He is. My, my, my. The great awakening for this church will be the judgment seat of Christ. I am sorry, but it will. And I'm not talking about just apostate Christians. It'll be God's people who had the Bible, who thought they knew it, and just never took the time because there was just always something more pressing than just learning who He is. All right, now chapter 2. The issues of our day. Now here comes the problem. Talk about a little history first. I already laid out for you in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 that there's seven churches. We know now that those seven churches represent 33 A.D. to 2000 A.D., where we're at and on beyond that, up to the rapture of the church, we'll say. And yet, you know what? If you would go back in history and you would study each of these churches, period, you would find that each period of church history... Now, let me just say this. I know I give you exact dates like 200 and then from 200 on, uh, those are approximate dates. I don't want to mislead you. I'm not telling you that 
when New Year's Eve came, 200 A.D., the Christians said, okay, we're now moved into the next church period. That's not what we're talking They overlap. I'm just giving you as a point of reference, but I am telling you this. There are seven periods. And when you study them through history, you'll find that every period in church history had a doctrinal issue they had to deal with. There was a predominant doctrinal issue in every one of these church periods that had to be thrashed out, nailed down, laid out, that came up as a controversy that true Bible-believing Christians had to sit down and with somebody that was trying to take them uh, to another doctrine and had to thrash it out. The church at Ephesus, 33 A.D. to 200. You know what their issue was? The issue that came up during that period of time was the issue of the resurrection. Did Christ really come out of that tomb? Because it wasn't shortly thereafter that they were saying that he really didn't die. You know that Abraham Lincoln, he was assassinated in 1865 by John Wilkes Booth. You know Abraham Lincoln was dug up three times after that because it wasn't ten years later that people are saying he wasn't dead. They dug him up three times. The last time they dug him up was in 1920 to see if he was still there. They dug him up ten years after he was shot because the word was around that he really didn't die. He met Elvis at the airport with Jack Kennedy and off they went. And Amelia Earhart flew him. <laughs> ten years after Lincoln was shot in Ford's Theater in front of how many people? A lot. By John Wilkes Booth, who shot him in the back of the head. Ten years later, the government is so can't deal with the, the pressure that he really wasn't dead, that they, he still had some living relatives, and they dug him up and said, there he is. And you know what? It wasn't 40 years later they had to dig him up again. Because you know why? Because it came around again that he wasn't dead. So they dug him up again. And then the last time in 1920, whenever it was, they dug him up the third time. And he, they, and he was preserved pretty good. A little moldy, but he was there. I mean, you could tell. It was Abraham Lincoln, you know. And they buried, this time they buried him in concrete, and they said, you know what? We ain't ever digging him up again. He's dead. You know what? It doesn't matter if he isn't. He's dead. If he wasn't dead because it's been too long, he's dead. But you know what? Jack Kennedy wasn't killed 24 hours, and people were saying he wasn't dead. The conspiracies were flying around all over the place that he wasn't dead. Elvis, they still think he's not dead. See how those things go? Let me tell you something. It wasn't 20 minutes after he come out of that tomb that the devil didn't miss the trick that he got spreading out on the rumor that he really didn't die. And I'll tell you what, it crept into the church. And this early church that was trying to hold the line had to stand up there and say, you know what, we've got an issue, and that issue is the resurrection. And we believe that he died according to the Scripture, was buried according to the Scriptures, and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And it split at that point. Next church period, Smyrna, 200 to 325. You know what their issue was? The deity of Christ. This is where you had the great controversy between Arius and Athanasia. And uh, Arius said that Christ really wasn't God. Athanasia said he was. They thrashed it out back and forth. And finally, they called the Council of Nicaea to supposedly deal with the issue, but they never really did. And that was their issue. 
the deity of Christ. The next one was the Pergamos, was the issue of baptism for salvation. Baptizing infants. Thyatira, the issue was amillennial versus postmillennial. The church took the place of the nation of Israel. In the Sardis church period, it was an issue of eternal security. In the Philadelphian church period, it was predestination. Calvin had come along at the end of the Reformation. He brought about Calvinism and started the Presbyterian church. He brought within the, the teaching of Calvinism and it started to spread. The church had to deal with it. You know what our church period is today? Laodicea. You know what our issue is? It's simple. Hey, this thing isn't complicated. We like to make it complicated because we don't want to really deal with the issue because we think by sticking our head in the sand, it'll go, the judgment seat of Christ will go away. The issue is really simple. Your issue and my issue isn't about the resurrection. is isn't about the deity of Christ. It isn't about baptism for salvation. It isn't about amillennial, postmillennial. It isn't about eternal security. It isn't about predestination. It is simply this. Do you have a Bible or do you not? Our issue is authority. Issue simple. Did God, I mean, don't let this thing get off the track. When you start to deal with somebody and somebody starts to put you down with that thing, here's the issue. It's keep it simple. Did God write an absolute perfect book? And if he did, where can I get a copy? That's all. The issue is simple. What good is a God who has the power to inspire a book but doesn't have enough power to preserve it? That's the issue. One time years ago, I got in trouble. I got in trouble a lot. I was just a young guy hearing a lot of big-time preachers. And I was struggling my own self trying to figure all this thing out. And I had a preacher one time, and he was preaching. And he was a famous preacher. If I tell you who he was, everybody in this room know who he was. And he's up there preaching, and he was laying it down. He's a great preacher. And he's up there in front of 5,000 people, and he's waving his Bible. And here's what he says. We believe, and he had a King James Bible, we believe the Bible is the absolute final authority in all things. And the whole place just went ballistic. Well, I was a happy camper. Because I've been told all my life up to this point by half the world that, it, that there was no absolute Bible. So after the service, I went up. I had me a putty. I had me a pal. I go buy him a donut. And I remember I went up and I said, Brother so-and-so, I said, I really enjoyed your message. And he said, well, thank you, young man. And I said, I want you to know, it was so refreshing today to hear that you believe that the King James Bible is the absolute Word of God. He said, son, I don't believe that. I said, well, your Bible is the King James Bible. He said, that's correct. And I said, but you were waving it up there saying, we believe the Bible is the absolute. He said, well, I was talking about the original manuscripts. He says, there's nobody that believes that the Bible is perfect where you have it. We believe the Bible is the absolute infallible Word of God in the original manuscripts. I said, then, what were you waving this one for? Now, at this point, it was getting a little tense for the dear doctor. I said, and now, some people are getting around me. We're right down in front of a church, 5,000 people, and everybody wants to shake hands, telling you, and I, my, my, I, I, was, I was dumb as a stump. My, you know what? I still hadn't shot my white horse yet. <laughs> and I was dumb as a stump. I thought I had me a Bible buddy. And I said, and, I, and I'm just, I, I am more dazed than I am trying. Now, at this time of my life, 
I'd be getting all over you. And I'd be coming at your ways that you wouldn't know how to defend it. But then I was dumb. I was stupid. I was still learning. And I said, well, I said, doesn't the Bible mean book? He said, yes, it does. I said, was there ever a time when all the original manuscripts were in one book then? Because I wanted the Bible. He said, no, of course not. I said, when Timothy was told that he had the Holy Scriptures, did he have the original copy? He said, of course not. And I'm saying, okay, if the Bible is only the absolute perfect Word of God in the original manuscripts, and nobody has them today, and they have never been in a book, how in the world do I get them? And when you're telling me that the Bible is the Word of God, you're talking about a book that has never existed in the history of mankind because there was never a time when all the original manuscripts were in one book. Well, at that point, conversation was over. And I had lost a friend, an ally in the great fight of the authority of the Word of God. But to me, from that point on, it was simple. And I'm practical about it. I'm as open-minded as a man as you'll ever find. You sit down and talk to me, you will find my mind is so open that you may fall into it. I mean, it is absolutely open. But it's simply this. Either God is God enough. What good is a God who is God enough to inspire the original manuscript, but then he loses it in the process? Hey, if he can lose his book after he inspired it, how do you know he can't lose your soul after he saved it? See, that's where my weird mind goes. I mean, I'm working on some things right now to scare you. I saw War of the Worlds the other day, and I'll tell you what, my whole philosophy changed about how this thing, where the Bible's at. I'll tell you, I got an idea now. I'm cooking. Just kidding you. Kind of kidding you. See, chapter 2, verse 3 says, In whom? Christ. In whom? Christ. Are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's all in Him. Now, I'm going to give you the verse 8 here, and I want you to see this in chapter 2, because here's the issue. Four things that destroyed our church. And Laodicea is only 12 miles to the north here. Watch it very carefully. Verse 8, 2 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, and after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness, fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in Him, which is the head of all principalities and power. Four things. Four things. And these four things is what destroyed Israel. They're what destroyed Europe. They're what destroyed England. And they're what destroyed us. First one is philosophy. Now, philosophy will come into America around the 1800s to the 1900s. It starts in Europe. It starts in Europe with men like Nietzsche, Kant. It starts in Europe with men like Thomas Hobbes. It starts men like Berkeley. It talks with men like Spizona. And they foster the idea, and they're all a little different, but it's Nietzsche that comes up with the concept that God is now dead. And that philosophy destroys Europe. And by 1800 to 1900, it comes to America. And European thinking, the great humanistic mind, the great Christian apostasy, the great Christian, it creeps into Christianity and the philosophy. And we see humanism, we see secularism beginning to move into the Christian world. And in 1933, in America, comes forth the first official document called the Humanistic Manifesto which is nothing more than European philosophy now brought over into America, which in times brings its way into Christianity. 
So philosophy first hit America around 1800, worked into 1900. The next one, vain deceit. This would be 1900 to 1930. This would be the meltdown of the Southern Baptist Convention. You see, back in the early end of the 1800s and the early 1900s, even up to the 1950s, you've got to get this perspective. There were no independent Baptist churches. You had three main groups. The Southern Baptist group was the largest group. Then you had a, a group called the American Baptist. Then you had a group called the GRB. Those were the three Bible-believing Baptist groups in America in the 1800s. By the time philosophy got in, you'll find that the Southern Baptist Convention by the 1920s and the 1930s had totally melted down. Philosophy had replaced the Bible. <clears throat> and you see during this time that the Southern Baptist Convention, which about this time had about 35 seminaries in America. In those seminaries they were teaching evolution. Those seminaries were teaching that the Bible was not the final authority. They were teaching that the story of Genesis was a myth. They were teaching that Noah's flood was not a real flood. And they were teaching every damnable philosophy that could ever creep in in the, in the seminaries of the Southern Baptist Convention. Now this, this is why the Southern Baptist Convention is split today and they have, a, uh, they have a moderate side and then they have a liberal side. And of course uh, it came to the point where it got so bad in the 20s and the 30s that this is why the Southern Baptist churches have never recovered today. Uh, they turned out about four generations of preachers that didn't even believe that God was God. And it affects in everything that they do today. Now, during this time, there was a man that there we call uh, old J. Frank Norris. And old J. Frank Norris is called the Texas Tornado. You might know he'd be from Texas. He was a Southern Baptist preacher who believed the Bible was the Word of God. Old J. Frank Norris took on the whole Southern Baptist Convention in the 20s and the 30s, took on the whole bunch of them, single-handedly. This man had been tried to be lynched several times, shot at. I don't, man, they threatened him with an inch of his life more times than the people in his room. You know what? Old J. Frank Norris held the line. He broke with the Southern Baptist Convention and, called, and started the World Convention. Started a Bible college. And that Bible college, he had, it was three blocks wrong everywhere. And across that thing, he said, they put a big sign with 20-foot letters. said, the only Bible college in the world still teaching the A.V. 1611 English Bible. You know what he broke with? He broke over authority. Now that's where every fundamental church has come from today. I don't care what fellowship you're from. You can be down in, you know, uh, where I don't care where you're from. You can be down in Springfield with the BBC, BBF. You might be over at a, you know, down in uh, with uh, Robinson down there and uh, wherever you go. Southwest, northwest, by southeast, by east, west, by northwest. It doesn't matter. Whatever. If you're a fundamental church today, you come from J. Frank Norris's break off with the Southern Baptist Convention. That's why. You know why? Because they entered into vain deceit and they got into philosophy and they denied the Bible and the whole system fell apart. And one man let him out. And you're here today. My preacher in Canton, Ohio was one of Norris's boys. And every preacher today that is probably in his 60s or 70s or 80s that's a fellow fundamental preacher is one of Norris's boys. Every one of them. They're all dying off today, but they are. Because they come out of that mindset and they formed that concept. And they knew that they were standing on the Word of God. The next thing, tradition of men. This will be 1940 up to 1970. This is where, because of the philosophy, because of the meltdown and the vain deceit of adding all the garbage and the philosophy in there, we now find the tradition of men. As you leave the Bible, you now make up your own rules. And now we see a rise of a system called legalism. 
We're going to set up rules to make you spiritual. Have nothing to do with the Bible, but we're going to set up a system of rules. We're going to take the whole concept of living for Christ based on your attitude of heart. Now we're going to give you a set of, set of rules that if you follow, you will be spiritual. And brother, it went from that to the 1970s to the 2005 to the rudiments of the world. And you know what it is today in churches? Anything goes when the whistle blows. Whatever you got to do to get a crowd to preach to them, you do it. Bring dancing girls in. Bring them all in. I, I saw this thing coming a while back. About 25 years ago, I was preaching at a Bible conference, and we were having lunch. And one of the pastor's wives was sitting there, and she was reading a book. And I asked her what she was reading, and she says, oh, she says, and she, I forget what the title was, but she said it was a, it was a book on Christian fiction. And what it was, it, remember the old Nancy Drew stories that we used to read growing up, you know, where Nancy Drew, and, it wasn't Nancy Drew, wasn't it? You looked at me like it wasn't Nancy Drew. I was never going out there. You know, you know, the Hardy Boys and all that. They were good thing. You know what I'm saying? And, and at this particular point, 20 years ago, they were doing the same thing with Christian stuff. And she was reading books about great spiritual revivals, great spiritual uh, things that were happening, great absolute biblical things that were taking place, reading stories of revivals that thousands of people were getting saved, a man going to a country as a missionary and, and just and, and all the perils and everything. The only thing was it was all fiction. I remember thinking back then, you know what? The reason we got to write Christian books about fiction, about serving God and the great exploits of serving God, because it ain't happening today, and we got to resort to fiction for our entertainment. Because the rudiments of the world, the traditions of man, the vain deceit, and the philosophy has destroyed the church. I had somebody ask me last night. A lady asked me last night, she says, Have you, written, have you, writ, have you read the book, The Purpose Driven Life? And I said, I sure have. She says, What did you think of it? I said, It was the greatest book I have ever read in my life. She says, oh, I'm in the middle of it, too. She says, I'm trying to get my boyfriend to read it, but he won't read it. She says, I think it's the greatest book. She says, when did, you, when, did you, when did you read yours? I said, I read mine in 1972. She looked puzzled. She said, but it was only written about three or four years ago. I looked at her, and I said, I love setting them up like this. You know what this is like? This is like a Chiefs game when you're down by two, and you only got ten minutes left. And you got the sucker play. And you run out there in the field and they think they're going to stop. And you got the play up your sleeve that you know is going to fool them, razzle-dazzle them, blind them, and you're going to stick it to them. And I said, obviously, we're not talking about the same book on the purpose-driven life. She says, now, no offense, she was blonde. <laughs> she had a tough time getting some things. I mean, this gal, honest or not, 20 minutes before, we were looking through a telescope. She was looking at the stars and everything, you know, and, and then we got, she found out I was a pastor, so we got to, but she's the one, 20 minutes, now, so I can't put everybody in this category, but 20 minutes before that, she asked me if there ever thought I'd ever be a land, a planned flight to the sun. Now, I explained to her that it would be awful hot to land on the sun, to which she responded, she thought we would go at night. 
Her boyfriend was trying to explain to her about the distances between the galaxies. And he said, you know, she says, she says, she, and he was talking to her, and he talked about the fact that it was uh, uh, millions of light years. So she says, what's a light year? Which I stepped in, now knowing that she was legally blonde, and I said, it's only a third of a year and less filling. I said, and I, and I came away with that thinking, you know what? And you know what? This year is a notable year. Maybe it was last year. But up till last year or this year, there were more books written. I mean, there were more Bibles sold than any other book that, that of the year was written. Last year, that didn't happen. There were more books on the purpose-driven life bought and sold than there were Bibles. Now, what does that say that we've come to the place where a book by man supersedes a book by God? That we think that there's a better book than this to give you the purpose-driven life. I'm telling you. But that's where we're at today. That's where we're at. We have lost the concept of, of all of this thing and how it breaks down. And that's, where, that's exactly where we're at. All right, now chapter 3 and chapter 4. My response to it. We're going to be done here. My response to it. And how to build a Philippian church and a Laodicean church period. Three concepts I want to leave you with. First of all, chapter 3, verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things of this earth, for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ. Somebody says, now Bob, very simply and very basically, how do I combat being 15 miles from from, from Laodicea. How do I deal with that? And the answer is, if you're saved, then seek those things which be above. If you're saved, set your affections. Set your affections. It can't get any easier. You set, you're, you're dead to this world. This world means nothing to you. You understand where you're at, and you seek, and you set. And you set your affections on the things of God. The mission of God and where your affections are at. And I, I don't know why, I don't, it doesn't get any easier than that. And yet, I, because, and I'm telling you, here's my worst fear. Here's my worst fear. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you today. I look across our church, and even in its youngness the way it is, I get a little scared sometimes because down the line someplace, I'm going to tell you right now, Mom and Dad, if you don't change some things in the way you're training up your children, you're going to have some real problems. I'm just telling you. I'm not a prophet, nor am I a son of the prophet. I know what it takes, and I'm telling you, there's some things that are you've got to work on. Now, that is not totally always your fault because of where you're at. Hear me out. Bottom line is it. Now, what am I going to do? Here's what I could do. And I think these things through. Here's what I could do. I could put together a child training program, have everybody over my house that's got kids, and then teach you how to raise your kid. But you know what? That won't work. You know why won't that work? Because there are husbands and wives in here that you've got problems in your marriage. And trying to fix the problem with your kids till you get your marriage online is the wrong way to go. So you know what I could do? I'll put together ten great lessons on how to have a successful marriage. That won't work either. You know why? Because the successful marriage has to be based on your personal one-on-one -on -one relationship with God, and that's where it's got to start. Now, you know what the issue is? 
how long are you going to take because you can't get to the third part, you can't get to the second part, and your kids are going to pay the price while we dilly-dally around trying to figure out what we're going to do, if we're going to take this thing seriously or not. Are we or are we not going to really put our lives together individually? Are we really going to plug into God? Let me tell you something. A wife will never be the wife she needs to be till she first understands what she needs to be to God. A husband will never be to his wife until he first understands what he needs to be to God. When you have that two working, then you can work on the marriage, and then it automatically goes to the kids. Trying to do this before you get the discipline of your life between the two of you is a waste of time. I've got all the information. I could take you and bury you in how to train your kids and make you the kids the best kids in this world. I could take and make your marriage better than Solomon's and the Queen of Sheba's. But it has to start with your own personal in that book because it's a fallacy to think you can get to the third part without accomplishing the first. And that's what churches do. That's why they're always in a hurry. I'm not in a hurry. You know what? We're going to do it right or we're not going to do it at all. It won't do me any good to start telling you how to do your kids and train your kids or put your marriage right till you first make up your mind. You individually, not your husband, not your wife, not his problem, her problem, my problem, she problem, he says, he says, this duking out in the backyard till the individual starts doing what's right with the Word of God in spite of what the other one does or doesn't do. You have to set your affections. And right now, your children need to see where mom and dad's affection is. If they don't see the affection, they're going to get the infection of the Laodicean church. It's as simple as that. What is, what is, what is, I'm telling you, you raise your child and you put sports as that child's main goal and you make him, you let him, and you, and you put the priority there in time when it comes to a ball game on Sunday or being on church, he's going to play ball. You know why? That's where you set your affections. And after a while, I know why you do it. I'm losing my daughter. I'm losing my child. Sports is the way to reach them. You made it. That's not the place to go. You're too late by then. Adding to their and abetting their sin is not going to solve the problem. At that point, there's some radical things you've got to do. But the bottom line comes down is you let them get too close to Laodicea. They saw in your life what your affection was, and very simply, they made it their affection. And their inf- your affection became their infection. And that's why they'd rather be anywhere but in God's house. They'd rather be wherever they have to be instead of hearing it. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you right now, moms and dads, you better understand that your kids right now when they're little, they're going to come to a point when they're 9 and 10 years old that you're not going to be able to grasp them like you can now. You better make up your mind right now. First, because this church will only be as strong as the families. The families will only be as strong as the husband and wives. We can have the King James Bible out our ears and fail miserably if we don't set our affection. I'm telling you, Laodicea is right up the road. I'm even pointing in the right direction. It's right up the road. Now, how do you do it? Verse 5 says, you mortify your flesh. Verse 8 says, you put off the old nature. Verse 10 says, you put on the new nature. 
Here's how you do it. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. And don't kid me. If you don't even know what I talked about in the questions I asked you in chapter 1, if you ain't got them figured out, don't, please, don't, don't insult my intelligence to tell me you know how to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly when you can't answer the 101 questions yourself. And I'm telling you that with everything in mind. Young Christians, five years or less, free pass. Free pass. But you have to decide what you're going to do too because you're on that road. Your kids are on that road. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord, and whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Kind of hard to do. Let the word of Christ dwell in richly if you don't have it, isn't it? You got it. You know what? The world wants to take it from you for through philosophy, tradition of man, and all the rudiments of the world, and God's people want to give it up easily so they don't have to hold themselves accountable to it. Oh, I'm telling you what. You wait till the latest in church runs smack dab into the judgment seat of Christ. You talk about priorities. You talk about finding out what is real, important in your life. You talk about finding out the reality of seeing this thing. My response to this thing is I've got to, we've got to build a Philippian, Philadelphian church in a Laodicean church. And the thing we will constantly battle is Laodicea just 15 miles down the road and it wants to move into our neighborhood. And chapter 4, and I'm done. Good shape. Chapter 4, verse 3. With all praying also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I also uh, am also in bonds. That I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always without with grace, seasoned with the salt, that you may know how to, ought to answer every man. Now, remember I told you in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, to mark that verse, which said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice, I will come with him, suffer me, him with me. All right. Chapter 4, this is that door. This is the door that God gives us as a Philippian church in the middle of the Laodicean church period. You want to have a relationship with God today? Don't blame it on the world. You can. You want to train up your children right? Don't blame it on somebody else. You can. You want to do what's right and have everything that God wants you to have? You can. God says, if you'll knock on the door, I'll open that door and fellowship with you. And he says in chapter 4, God gave us a door of utterance. Doors in the Bible always represent opportunities. I believe that the greatest opportunity that we have in this world lies before us, right before the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. I believe there are still men and women who want to do what's right, who want to believe God and believe God's Word. I believe there's still men and women who want to raise their children right, who want to build the right kind of marriages, who want to build the right kind of relationships, and who want to identify with the right kind of church, taking those things that need to be done and putting them into their life. I believe that. And I believe the greatest opportunity we have is when we reach out and we invite people. We talk to people. You guys at work that are witnessing to people all the time, bringing them to church, they're getting saved, and they're coming in, and they're getting trained, they're getting discipled. That's the way it needs to work. He says, a door of utterance, verse 3, that I might speak the mysteries of Christ. 
Then he says in verse 5, walk in wisdom. And I'm telling you, we have to walk in the wisdom of the Word of God. There isn't a time in your life and my life, in the day and age that we live in, that we can take for granted what we have. The moment we start to take what God, and it is so easy to do. It is so easy to do. It is absolutely one of the easiest things in all the world to do is to take what we've got here for granted because we get so caught up with everything else. We have to walk in wisdom. And then it says, verse 5, redeeming the time. Now, I want to talk to you about that for a little bit. That concept of redeeming the time is one of the greatest things that I have ever found in the Word of God. There's a number of different aspects to it. First of all, we've all wasted time in our Christian life, every one of us. And anything that I put on you today, I put on myself. I'm not the kind of preacher that preaches at you. I'm the kind of preacher that preaches at me, and some of it fills up and spills out over on you. But I do know this. We've all wasted time. Some of us are wasting time right now. But I'm telling you, at some point in your life, you have to begin to do what's right, and you have to make up for the lost time, and you redeem that time. I told you last Thursday night on Thursday night Bible study that what we were doing on Thursday night by putting the Bible together is you're redeeming the time. You know how you're redeeming the time? Stuff I'm giving you on Thursday night took me 30 years of my life to get down. Took me 20 years of my life to lay out. Connecting it all together, you're looking at a guy that's been in the Bible 34, 35 years, my whole life been connecting those things and putting those things together. And you know what? Some of you haven't spent a spittle of time in that thing because you just got saved or you just got right with God. You know what I'm doing? I'm taking all of the knowledge that I've got in 35 years that I did the work for, that I labored for, that I wept over, and I prayed over, and I stayed up late at night and went to work bleary-eyed the next day to get it down and came home, got in it, went, did this, come back, got some more, all of that time I'm giving to you for nothing. You know why? It's part of the redeeming the time process. That's how I learned it. I learned it by men who sweated, prayed, wept over the Word of God, and they gave it to me when I knew nothing. My job is to give it to you when you know nothing. Your job is to grow up and know something and give it to somebody else that doesn't know anything. Redeeming the time. That's how you redeem it. You find a man who knows that book, who knows God, and who loves that book and loves God, prove him out, and then find him, and then drive him nuts. Finding out all he knows about the Bible. Next week, I got a terrible, terrible ordeal thing I got to do. And I am not happy about it. I dreamt about it last night. I'll think about it today. I'll dream about it every night this week till that black Saturday next week comes. And that is, before we go on vacation, I got to take my three dogs and put them in a kennel. They're my kids. We talk. I preach to them. I got it down where I'll run verses by them. They, I know by the blink of their eyes or the wag of their tail if I'm on or off. I'm kidding you. They're just dogs. But I miss them. 
Last year, I had to put him in the vet again. I put him in the thing. Now, I, I do the best I can. I get a kennel where all three can be in the run together. And last year, I took him. Now, Tinker, she's the black one. She's eight or nine years old. She's her own woman. She doesn't care. I mean, she'll do what she wants to do. She's been around. She popped the T-shirt. She's been there. If we go down to this big old kennel, Tinker goes right in. Now, Daisy, she's the blonde one. She's the alpha female of the group. She sits down, but I unhook her and throw her in. She goes in. Then we got Buddy. He's the brown one. 101 pounds. Bigger than the other two. Looks like he could lift the roof off the house. And he's the biggest baby. Other two dogs, they're already out in the run checking it out. Daisy does what Daisy does best. She's barking at everybody in the world. Buddy, I unsnap him, and I got him by the car, and he won't budge. I said, come on, bud, go. He won't budge. I said, I'll get him here in a minute. You know what that dog did? That dog, as fast as I could, jumped around, sitting down, put both paws around my legs, <laughs> and looked up at me like, hey, man. I don't want to leave you. Don't go in there. I'm not letting, and I couldn't get his legs off. I mean, I'm kidding you. And finally, the one lady, you know, she's prying one leg, and I'm prying the other leg, and finally, his legs, you know, and he's, and now he's pushing in, you know, and I, finally I get him, and he, I, we have to literally throw him in. I was walking out of the thing, and I was feeling terrible, but then it hit me. You know what? I got people in my church just like that. They will hang on to me, and they will suck everything out of my brain I got. You know why? Because they know they got to redeem the time. That dog didn't want to go in there, and he fought for everything he had that he didn't have to go in. And you know what? You have to fight for everything you get out of that Bible. The thing that I hate my people to say to me is, I just know you're so busy. Well, you know what? That's my job. And the bottom line is this. That won't wash the judgment seat of Christ. You have to redeem the time. You have to redeem the time with your kids. There's things you have to do to get your kids back if you've lost them. You have to redeem the time with your parent, with your marriage if it's on the rocks. You have to redeem the time in your own personal walk. You have to redeem the time. You find somebody who's got the answer just like I did when I was a young Christian and I wrapped my arms around his leg and I said, you may walk, but you're going to drag me along with you and I'm going to learn everything you know about God in that book and I'm going to redeem the time. Then he says in verse 6, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. You see, you let your speech always be with grace. In other words, anytime you're ready to learn about God and the Word of God, I'm ready. There will never be a time in my life that I will say to anybody, I won't help you. I may not help you the way you think you need to be helped, but I will help you because that's my job. My motto is anytime you're ready, I'm ready. Anytime you're ready to learn that book, to learn God, anytime you're ready to clear off a spot in your life and say, you know what, I have got to learn what God's Word says, I have got to learn who Christ is, I'm ready. Seasoned with salt. 
Bible doctrine. We got to do it by the book. I'm ready whenever you are, but we're going to do it God's ways, not your way. Your way has proved a failure as my way has proved a failure.